0: Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with me as we investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out in this series of programs on the Kingdom of God that Jesus was a first-century Jew. His language and his teaching must be understood in their own context. It's a fatal mistake of Bible study to read 20th century ecclesiastical ideas into the Bible and assume that Jesus thought just as we do. When Jesus came preaching the gospel, he announced the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was a clearly understood phrase at the time when Jesus inaugurated his public ministry. The kingdom of God was the national hope of Israel. It meant simply that peace was coming to the Holy Land, as the prophets of Israel had foretold. It was a code word. The kingdom of God was a code word, really, for the liberation of the land of Israel from foreign domination. The kingdom of God is at hand means that the throne of David is going to be restored in the land of Israel. The throne of David, of course, was part of the great national hope of Israel. The throne was to exist in perpetuity, according to the contract made between God and David in 2 Samuel 7. There would be an ultimate and perfect ideal ruler, the Messiah, who would reestablish the throne, restore the throne in Israel, and supervise an idyllic and perfect world government with benefits extending across the globe. Do you remember that in Acts 1-6 the apostles asked their famous last question? They said to Jesus, Has the time now come for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's exactly what we would expect of disciples trained at the feet of Jesus, and remember that Jesus himself was schooled in the Hebrew prophets, the Old Testament. Nothing was more desirable, nothing was yearned for with greater passion than the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, and that's what the disciples asked about in Acts 1-6, and Jesus' response to that question did not in any way deny the reality of the future restoration of the kingdom to Israel. In fact, in Acts 3, and verse 21, at the end of a sermon following the healing of a lame man, Peter said that the Messiah Jesus was now at the right hand of the Father until the time comes for the restoration of all things according to the words of the Hebrew prophets. You read that in Acts 3, and verse 21. Acts 1, and verse 6, In Act 3, in verse 21, are companion verses. They're parallel verses. In Acts 1, 6, there's a question about the restoring of the kingdom to Israel. Jesus said that that restoration of the kingdom to Israel would happen at a time unknown. However, he also said that the Spirit would be poured out in a few days' time. It's a fundamentally important principle to establish from Acts 1 that the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost within a few days is positively not the same event as the promised restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And that must prove, of course, to any unprejudiced reader that the coming of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost is not the coming of the kingdom. Those two events are specifically and expressly differentiated and distinguished in Acts chapter one verses five through seven. The restoration of the kingdom to Israel is mentioned again in Acts three and verse 21. And this time we have the noun restoration. Jesus is to be retained in heaven at the right hand of the Father until the time comes for the restoration. The Greek word there is apokatastasis. It means putting back together, putting everything in order, and it's according to the message of the Hebrew prophets, Peter says. That apokatastasis, that restoration is destined to occur when Jesus returns to this earth. It's important to emphasize the fact that Jesus is actually coming back to this earth. It's his second coming, about which the Bible speaks so frequently. It's not a second visit to the earth, so that Jesus can whisk people off to some super-celestial region far beyond the sky. No, Jesus is coming back. He's on his way down in First Thessalonians 4, and the faithful, that's to say the resurrected dead, and the surviving Christians will be caught up to meet this distinguished visitor and escort him on his way down to the earth. Zechariah 14 verse 4 plainly says that his feet will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. That incidentally proves that Jesus is a corporeal figure. He has a body. Do you remember that in Luke 24 verse 39 he said, Touch me! A spook or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. I'm not a manifestation of some ethereal, spectre-like creature. This is me, Jesus, the resurrected, immortalized Jesus, and I am corporeal, I'm palpable, I have a body. Touch me and see, it's me, Jesus, myself. That's the message of Christianity. The beauty of our faith is that in the resurrection we're going to be recognized as corporeal and yet immortal beings. We're going to be able to eat and drink and function on a renewed earth. In fact, we as Christians are going to rule the world and the earth as kings. Revelation 5, verse 10. Do you remember that Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, they're going to inherit the earth. Unfortunately, our common language about going to heaven makes it almost impossible for us to hear the words of Jesus clearly. We're so keen to mount our own language, our own traditions, against the words of Jesus, that it's exceedingly difficult for his voice to be heard. But listen to that text in Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed, Jesus said, are the meek, those who have the characteristic of meekness in their personality and their demeanor. They're going to have the earth as their inheritance. The land, in fact, as their inheritance. That, of course, is the great land promise made to Abraham. To Abraham and his seed, the land, or the earth, were granted by a solemn covenant enacted by God. You'll find that story in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, and particularly important is the passage in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. That land promise never came to Abraham. According to Hebrews 11, verse 13 and verse 39, all the faithful, including the patriarchs and all the prophets of Israel, all of them died not having received the promise. Do you see that the only way that that promise then can come to them is by resurrection? According to Scripture, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets are currently dead. They're unconscious in the grave as all the dead are, according to the Bible and they're waiting then to be resurrected. It's only by resurrection at the second coming that all the faithful of all the ages can come as one grand community into their inheritance, the promised land of the kingdom of God. According to Hebrews 11, verse 8, Abraham lived in the promised land. He didn't live, you note, in heaven as a place far removed from this earth. He lived in the promised land. The promised land is this earth and is going to be renewed to be fit for immortal beings supervising a surviving mortal population who will bear children, who will build houses, as we read in Isaiah 65. But the saints of all the ages will be the government of that time. To be a Christian is to be a king or queen in training. The Christian church is nothing other than the aristocracy of God in training now in preparation for the kingdom and their function as royal rulers with Christ in the kingdom of God on the earth when Jesus returns. What I'm stating here is simply basic, fundamental Bible teaching, desperately obscured, however, because our tradition about going to heaven at death makes all of that, if not irrelevant at least, extremely unclear. Now, there's a very simple way by which we Christians, those of us who claim to be following Jesus, can remedy this awful situation. All we have to do is to imitate the language of Jesus. In no passage did Jesus ever say, when we get to heaven, when I take you to heaven, what do we have to do to go to heaven? You should do so and so to get to heaven. On the contrary, he always speaks of inheriting the kingdom of God. Heaven is the place where the treasure of the future is now stored up in preparation for that future, just as we store money in a bank, let's suppose, in view of retirement, so we expect at retirement not to go to the bank to retire, but to receive the money from the bank in order to enjoy it for the remainder of our lives. In exactly the same way, our treasure is now stored in heaven with God, but that reward is going to come with Jesus out of heaven to the earth in order that we may enjoy the inheritance of the kingdom of God, on this earth. Until we cease speaking of when I get to heaven, so-and-so is in heaven, we will not make sense of the teaching of Jesus. The fact is that we've inherited this language from Neoplatonism, from a time when the immortality of the soul gained ground in the church, and in adopting the language of Plato, we have unfortunately abandoned the language of Jesus, But it makes no sense that we should seek to have a relationship with Jesus heart to heart and mind to mind and yet go on using language that he would not have recognized. Why don't we begin to speak of when we inherit the kingdom? We're looking forward to the coming of the kingdom. We're praying, Thy kingdom come. We're hoping to be saved when Jesus establishes the kingdom on the earth. We're hoping to inherit the earth, to inherit the promises made to Abraham the promise that he would be heir of the world. Romans 4, verse 13. We're hoping to reign with Christ as a king upon the earth. These are simple fundamental verses which will overthrow the traditional ecclesiastical confusion which has arisen because we have moved away from the language of Jesus to the language of Greek philosophy, an alien system of philosophy which Jesus knew nothing about, and would have rejected as paganism. You remember that Paul said that one who joins himself to the Lord Jesus is one spirit with him, one mind with Jesus. The way to become one-minded with Jesus is to use his language and to think his thoughts, to share his heart, to allow his heart and his mind to be open to us as we receive his words, his teaching, his theology with open-hearted childlike submission to his way of expressing things rather than our deeply entrenched ecclesiastical notions which have made Bible reading confusing and church-going difficult. As one leading scholar puts it, he says that the consensus of opinion in the church in regard to life after death is controlled by the extra-Christian idea of the immortality of the soul. It's not controlled by any conception formed after listening faithfully to the New Testament witness. Christian men are now inquiring, another scholar says, whether accepted views of human nature and future punishment and life after death and so on are derived from philosophy and tradition or from Scripture. They're beginning to suspect that a vast amount of current popular theology has human philosophy as its source. Figures in the field of religious thought which they used to think were figures of Christ, his prophets, and his apostles, they're beginning to suspect are figures of the evil spirit, figures of Plato, and of various church fathers who derived their theology in great measure from Plato. End of quotation. It's time for Christians everywhere to get real with their Bibles, to begin to learn the language of Jesus, to follow his teachings, to become disciples in the true sense one sitting at the feet of the great rabbi, realizing that his message of the kingdom and that every word he spoke is precious to us, but we must adopt his words and give up our traditions. We invite you to write for our free book on the kingdom of God, our booklet on what happens when we die, and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.